0: Matthew 12, verse 38. Matthew writes, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're testing him. They're trying to trip him up. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. We want to see the one who is greater than Jonah through the book of Jonah today. So turn to Jonah three, please, this morning as we resume our series. I am, I am overflowing with excitement about this chapter. This is not a, a book of the Bible that I've studied before. And I've heard you know messages preached on Jonah uh, from parts of Jonah. I've never heard it preached uh, sequentially through. And, and I have not really studied Jonah 3, but this is a great chapter. This may be on my top ten list of favorite chapters in the Bible, certainly the Old Testament. And so, uh, we're here in Jonah 3. Now, we have seen some pretty crazy stuff in this book of Jonah already, haven't we? Uh, we saw this, this perfect storm, raging storm that just came out of nowhere, it seemed. And then, as soon as Jonah is tossed into the water, it be, that sea and the wind and the waves, everything became perfectly calm. That's bizarre we, we we saw fish swallow this prophet whole but not eat him but kept him alive in there for 3 days and 3 nights and and then spit him up on a beach that's pretty crazy this is the kind of stuff that that skeptics of the bible love to find in scripture they 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 start salivating when they hear things like this and they start blogging and they get they get excited about these things but as i said last time I believe every single word in this Bible is true, unashamedly. Um, and, and, but, but these aren't even the craziest things that we find in the book of Jonah, let alone the whole Bible. We said that last time. What we will look at today makes the whole giant fish scene look like child's play. This is, this, this is nothing. Let me, let me just try to give you a, a, a modern comparison to what's happening in Jonah 3. And we're going to read through it together in just a moment. According to the uh, Anti Defamation League, uh, the, 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 the second most anti Semitic country in the world is Iraq. Uh, it only trails the territories of uh, the Palestinian territories of Gaza and the, and, and the West Bank. But just keep that in mind. And imagine, though, a Jewish rabbi going into Mosul, Iraq, a couple of years ago when it was held by the Taliban. And walking around the city and angrily yelling over and over, the God of Israel is about to wipe you off the face of the earth. For one, that wouldn't last long because he'd be murdered within minutes. But imagine if the impossible happened. Imagine if the people of Mosul, including all those Taliban fighters, listened to this rabbi And became convicted of their sin and turned away from Islam and embraced the faith of their sworn enemies and immediately started worshipping the God of Israel. The whole city of 600,000 people in modern day Mosul is is just caught up in this frenzy as as people renounce their faith and allegiance to Allah. and And they mourn their sin against the Lord and they put their trust in Yahweh alone. And President Massoum himself, he hears about this rabbi's message and he also believes in the God of Israel and calls the whole nation to stop worshipping Allah and to worship the God of Israel alone. And this doesn't happen over a period of years or months. It happens in one day. From hundreds of years of vocal, violent, vicious opposition against Israel to embracing the Jewish faith as their own, the whole city, in just a few hours. Now that is some crazy stuff. <laughs> that's, that's much harder for me to believe than, than some guy surviving a few days in a monstrous fish. But that's essentially what we'll read here in Jonah 3. And And as you may remember, we're talking about the ancient city of Nineveh, which is which is the, in the same location as the modern-day city of Mosul. So 2,800 years ago, the same city was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was this, this massive walled city, one of the largest cities in the world, this booming metropolis. And again, it was this, this huge walled city and had these surrounding suburbs, and in total, with, with the population, it seems, was around 600,000 people. And so, so these people, this the, the cruelty and the, and the wickedness of the Ninevites was legendary. The Assyrians and the Ninevites in particular. They wore evil like a badge of honor. And in particular, their, their hatred for the Jews was especially intense and well-known. But there was this spiritual awakening. This mass conversion. And the whole city will see trust in Yahweh alone. So a whole generation of Assyrians is saved that day. Never before, never since in the history of the world has there been a movement of God like we're seeing right here. This is why I am so excited about this chapter. This is unique in all world history. And it wasn't because some godly, courageous, compassionate team of missionaries went and served tirelessly there for years. No, it's one reluctant, bitter, angry prophet proclaiming this truncated message of doom. And even so, God uses that to pour cool, refreshing water on this parched city and bring life. It's incredible. And what we'll see, the, the surprising grace of God, the grace of God we've been singing about this morning, it's on full display in this passage this morning. And this is what has energized my own heart this week. We, we, we are supposed to be shocked by this chapter, and I hope that you will be. And there are really three major surprises in these ten verses, and that will be the structure of, 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 the, of our time this morning. There's the, surprise, the surprises of Jonah's repentance, of Nineveh's repentance, and of God's repentance. And, or we could say this, Jonah obeys, Nineveh believes, and God shows mercy. And that's what we'll walk through today. Now, let me give you a little spoiler alert. Uh, there is a tragic epilogue to this event that we're going to see next week. And, and it, it is, it, it's coming, and many of you know how things end with Jonah. But for now, let's just enjoy this one brief shining moment. And and let's look at God's compassion his saving mercy raining down upon these people and saturating this parched this desert that's parched by sin and bringing life. And so that the same powerful God that was at work then, and we're going to see in Jonah three, is at work today. God is still the saving one that he, he was back with the Ninevites 2,800 years ago. The, the same mercy is available today. The same relentless pursuing grace of God can surprise you and me today. And I pray that it will. Let's walk through this. first surprise that we'll see is that Jonah obeys. Jonah obeys. This is the only time in the whole book that Jonah does obey. Everybody else in, in the book of Jonah is obeying. The, the wind is obeying. The waves are obeying. The sailors, the pagan sailors are obeying. The fish is obeying. Jonah, this is the first time. But he does obey here. And so maybe even more surprising than Jonah's obedience is the fact that God's grace allows Jonah another opportunity to obey. That's grace. You, you look, let's look in the context. we Look back into chapter 2, the very last verse of chapter 2. Jonah, Jonah's just been puked up by this monstrous fish at God's command. Verse 10, chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jonah crawls up on uh, this beach somewhere, presumably maybe around Joppa, something like that, where he boarded the ship. He's cleaning himself up and wiping the fish vomit out of his eyes, <laughs> spitting it out. I don't, I don't know what that looked like or what that would have been like and just getting it out of all his ears and nose and belly button i don't know he's got just is nasty and and but then there's this shocking display of god's grace verse one of chapter three then the word of the lord came to jonah the second time (laughs) you see it it's the grace of god that allows jonah to have this second time his second opportunity, there, there's been grace all along. There was, there was grace in the storm. There was grace in being tossed overboard. There was grace in the fish swallowing him up. There was grace in, in the fish vomiting him out on the beach. There, there, and now it's grace that brings Jonah right back to the place where he said no to God. And it gives him an opportunity to say yes. That's grace. So this is surprising grace. Yeah, yes, God, God listen... God has work that He wants to get done in Nineveh, and He will get it done. He has people that He wants to save. But He's doing a lot more than that. He's always doing more than we realize. He's always doing more than our eyes see. He's always up to more. If if God was just task-oriented, and He just needed to get a job done in Nineveh, He could have sent somebody else. He could have done it another way. But, but God cares as much about the worker as He does about the work. He cares as much about the process as about the, the result. And, and so this, this is His relentless pursuing grace towards Jonah and towards you and me, brothers and sisters. God, God has not changed in how He works. He is infinitely wise and gracious and powerful. And He is always doing more than we see. We, 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 we have situations in our lives and, and we may see a couple of ways in which God seems to be at work and, and why this is happening and how he's at work. He is doing millions, billions, gazillions more things than we could possibly see or understand. He is always doing more. And so it is in this case. But here is God. He's pursuing Jonah. He's giving him another opportunity to obey. He's not given up, given up on Jonah God will not give up on you, brothers and sisters. He will not give up on me. I don't care what you've been through, how, much, how far you've run from him, what you've, what you've walked through, how much he's had to do to get your attention. He will not give up on you. If you have breath, he has not given up on you. Verse 1 again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. We belong to a God of many opportunities. Just think of all the times that you and I have run from God. Times when, when we rejected what He had for us. Times when we thought we knew, better, uh, we, we knew better than God did what was best for us. Times when we loved sin more than we loved Him. And yet here is God, even through this verse this morning, pursuing, calling, loving you and me. What is that? It's grace. It's relentless grace. Grace—it's grace that draws us to Himself, changing us, not just accomplishing tasks, but 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 part of His work is to change us and to grow us. There's grace towards Jonah. The, one of the hymns that we know better than any other is "Amazing Grace," and we we tend to think first and last verse. But I was thinking this week about that second verse of "Amazing Grace." It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. Just think about what's being said. This is a profound lyric. That I haven't really thought about it until this week. As I was, came, came across a playlist. But just notice the two types of fear. That Newton is, is, is saying. Talking about here in this hymn. Grace that taught my heart to fear. Fear what? Fear God. It's the grace of God. That brings me to fear. To honor. To worship. To revere god grace doesn't say you know i've got grace i'll live for myself now no grace teaches my heart says i i can't believe i'm forgiven by god so my heart is taught to reckon you god is greater than anything else in my life it's grace that teaches me to fear it's grace it's working in jonah's life to say jonah fear me Quit living for yourself and your desires and, and what you want and what you think is going to make your life comfortable and better. Just fear me. And so it's grace that teaches our hearts to fear. It's grace that our fears are relieved because of God's grace upon me. All of my sin is gone and Christ's righteousness covers me. So what is there to be stressed about? <laughs> my, my, my other fears, worries, anxieties, they're, 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 they're diminished as I... As, as grace is at work in my life. How, so, I, so I'm a child of God. I am His. He is mine. I'm good. <laughs> That's grace. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Ah, isn't that so true? I remember how precious this grace was, even in the elementary understanding that I had of it in high school. I grew up in church and hearing were exposed to the gospel but it was as, as a high school student put my trust and confidence in Jesus Christ alone and the holy spirit came to live inside of me and I and and I and I got to understand what grace really means and I'm still not over it. Uh, do you want to sing it right now? <laughs> I do. Let's let's sing. It. Just join me. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Twas grace that taught my grace gives Jonah this second opportunity to obey. And shockingly, he does. Now in chapter 2, a couple weeks ago, we saw this, this prayer of Jonah to God in the belly of this great fish. He turns to the Lord when God stops him in his tracks, when he's running from God, and, and, and God saves his life. And so he, he, he's, we said last time that the the, quote, repentance of Jonah in chapter 2, that prayer, it's not—it's it's a lot less than ideal. It's not what we want necessarily. It's not completely candid. Yet, yes, he prays this prayer in Jonah 2, and we get to chapter 3, where we're at today. We're going to see that he's compliant with the Lord's command, and he does do what God tells him to do. But then in chapter 4 next week, he's furious with the Lord. He's on the ground, you know, kicking and screaming and having a temper tantrum before God, and and he's hot. He's angry at God, pouting, complaining. That's how the book ends. And so, what 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 is this sin in Jonah? Was this is this repentance a complete sham? Is, is he does he dupe God? Does he pull a, pull a fast one on God just to kind of so he can get out of the fish? And and then God says, Oh, I didn't, I missed that. Of course not. I think he was grateful for God's deliverance. I, I think he saw God's hand in stopping him and saving him and preserving his life. He's thankful God saved his life. I think his will is broken. I think he So he decides to do the very thing that he previously he rebelled against. And he goes to Nineveh. So in some sense, there is change. He is repentant. But it's far from perfect. Now, before we pick up rocks and hurl them at Jonah and his... Quote repentance. Um, we remember we've said this several times through this study. We are Jonah. If we're honest, we have to admit that we're often a lot like this. We could go around the room and share stories about times in our life when we repented of one sin, only to go right back to it again and fall back into a sin pattern that we walked away from, or to repent from one sin only to, re- and we think that's it, only to realize later that there were there were There were other bigger, deeper sins, attitudes of our hearts that we didn't even realize were there. And God brings those to light at a later time. So for now, let's just take note of Jonah's compliance, his obedience in chapter 3. We'll cut him down to size again in chapter 4 for his lousy attitude. Verse 1, again, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. Verse 3, so different from chapter 1. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. This time he does what the Lord tells him to do. Without protest, without hesitation, he does it. Did he enjoy it? We're not told. I think from chapter 4 we could probably safe to say probably not. He probably still didn't like doing it. But he complied. He obeyed according to the word of the Lord. Now we'll see in the the next verse we see this reference to a three days walk. Uh, I know some translations it doesn't make this very clear, but this is not how long it took for Jonah to get to Nineveh. It wasn't a three days journey. That has more. That has to do with the size of the city. The ESV I think does a better job translating this. So. you look at, if you were to look at a map and open, your, open up the maps at the back of your Bible, if you have one, you look on there, you realize there ain't a beach within a 3 days journey of Nineveh to be found. Uh, there, there, there's nothing that close. The distance from the closest beach to Nineveh's city gates would have been probably at least a three-week journey and maybe longer. And so we had. So you just think about this. I've always read you know, Jonah 2 to Jonah 3, and it's like he gets out of the fish and he starts preaching. No, he has a three-week journey probably. To think about this three week trip walking across this vast desert to get to Nineveh and and to anticipate what's coming to to three weeks to back out this is a running problem did did his heart waver was he muttering under his breath the whole time as he's walking out there we don't know but I can only imagine there, were, there had to be this mix of of fear and shame and anger and Hatred, all these thoughts swirling and feelings swirling around in him as he makes this journey to Nineveh. But we do know he did make the journey. He did go across that hot desert. He obeys whether he liked it or not. And let me just say, I think there's a lesson for us here in this this example of Jonah. There are some who think and some who even teach and propagate this view of sanctification that you should only obey if and when you feel like it. Because if you obey when you don't feel like it, then you're just acting in the power of the flesh, and that doesn't really count. So, or if you obey with any degree of reluctance, or any, any slight conflicting desire to the, to the contrary, if there's anything in you that doesn't really want to do what God tells you to do, or if you have to discipline yourself to obey, then all of that means that your obedience is really kind of worthless, and it's, it's just legalism. You don't 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 do that. So you have to ask: Does that mean that we only obey if we feel like obeying? Because there are a lot of times, brothers and sisters, when I don't feel like doing what God wants me to do, and there's a lot of times when you don't. But as Christians, we we don't walk by feelings; we walk by faith. We trust that what God says, what God wants from us, is right, whether it feels good or. Or not. We don't trust our feelings. We trust God's objective word. That does not change. That we confessed earlier this morning in the service. Even if we were sinless. Which we are not even close. To being. But even if we had zero sinful inclinations. Whatsoever. Just imagine. Let's play the hypothetical game. We would still have to deal with perfectly legitimate. And natural desires. That would conflict with God-given duties. And this is what I mean. So, so we'd, we'd have to sometimes restrain our normal, natural desires that aren't immoral or anything like that, and those impulses, and, and we'd have to submit ourselves and to that greater desire, desire to obey and glorify God. You understand what I'm saying? I'll give you an example of this. The only example we could possibly give, and it's Jesus Christ. What does He pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? He has no sinful desires, no inclinations whatsoever whatsoever to sin. And yet, in His normal, His his natural human desires and fears, they cause Him to pray like this, Father, if it is, and with sweat drops of blood, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way than the cross, please, Father, let's do that. Yet not my will, but Yours be done. And so without, without question, bring it back into, for you and me, it is better, it is sweeter, it is easier when we can obey and love it. But obedience is always good. It's always right, even if there's some reluctance in it. Even if there are desires and feelings that are contrary to what God wants us to say. You know, we say, I know that feels better, but I choose to obey you, God the situation. Well, let me let me give this qualifier. I, I'm not saying that motives don't matter. I'm not saying that, that your attitude doesn't matter to God, that He doesn't care about your attitude. He's going to give Jonah a good attitude adjustment here. But it was better for Jonah, even in his reluctance, to obey God than to say, no, not going. And God, and so what I'm saying is that your obedience is based upon God's desire, His will, not your feelings. That's a corrective I think we desperately need today. As a father, there's a lot of things that I would feel like doing other than what God wants me to do as a dad, but I say, God, I I, I, I want to obey you. And uh, as, as a Christian, I, you know, what, what are we going to? There's 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 things that are more fun to do, at times for the moment, but but we and, and we know this sometimes uh, sometimes and you know this from experience the love of obedience comes after we obey, and so it's it's always right to obey regardless of our feelings at the time, but sometimes but but sometimes we grow and God changes our attitude and we see the goodness of it and we see the blessing of it that sometimes comes later not always but sometimes. Sometimes all we got to do, we got to get ourselves off the beach, clean ourselves up and walk, do what God wants us to do, whatever we feel. All right, back off the rabbit trail. Surprisingly, Jonah obeys and the, and the victory that results from his obedience and his preaching and his going to Nineveh is not Jonah's, but it's God's. It's God's grace that gives him the opportunity, God's grace at work to move him to say yes There was enough true repentance in Jonah for God to forgive him and to restore him and to use him to bring the greatest spiritual awakening in the history of the world. It didn't happen on account of Jonah's merit as a man of God. It happened on account of the relentlessness of God's surprising grace. That's the only way we can account for it. Aren't you thankful that God is gracious towards us and patient with us, that his mercies endure forever? If he, if he was not so kind and gracious and merciful to us, we, we would all be uh, spiritual flunkies and Christianity dropouts. But he's patient, and he, and he won't give up on us. He doesn't on Jonah. He doesn't for us. That brings us to the second shocker in this, in this uh, chapter. Second surprise... Nineveh believes, Nineveh believes, this is incredible, second half verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, so when it says an exceedingly great city, most of you probably have a note in your Bibles, a little little number to make you look down, a little footnote there, literally means a great city to God, God saw Nineveh and said, this is a great city to me. I think it probably has something to do with just the fact that the crucial role that this city would play in his plans. And, and so he's just saying, this city matters to me. Why? Because the people who live there matter to me. And it's three days journey in breadth. It probably means it took probably three days to kind of walk through the city, the, maybe a 60 miles in circumference around the whole, the, the, the main part of the city and the probably the metropolitan area. So we have a good Understanding of that, I 285 is 64 miles, uh, a 64 mile loop around Atlanta. So just imagine that area. This is a large, large city, massive city in those days, big in our own day. And so, and it's the capital of Assyria, this rising world power, and the Assyrians at that time were Israel's most dreaded enemies, and for good reason. The Assyrian armies had a reputation, we talked about this several weeks ago, of being absolutely ruthless and brutal. And, and they're just ruthless killers. They, everywhere they went, they just struck fear in people. The reputation that preceded them. We, 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 again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. They were, they were known for these, these, these just brutal military campaigns. They built pyramids of their enemies' heads and stacked them up as, as monuments to military victories. And They displayed disemboweled corpses on poles as, as just trophies for their violence. Their whole military, political strategy was based on a take no prisoners philosophy. And so conquered peoples and civilizations were not generally assimilated by the Assyrians. No, they were they were conquered, leveled, eradicated. He's wiped everybody out. Most most conquering armies and and, and, and nations throughout the world history, they've kind of followed that plan. They, they would go in, conquer a people, you know, leave a group of soldiers behind to form some kind of occupation government and, and to keep things in order. And then, and then the, the main part of the army would move on. But the Assyrians thought, no, that's not efficient at all. No, So, so they, 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 they wanted to keep their whole army together and to keep marching and keep conquering other peoples. So they just carried out a campaign of wholesale slaughter. Men, women, children, animals. Even vegetation and trees, they just killed everything and moved on. And so you can imagine the fear that struck around their surrounding neighbors, particularly Israel. So I, I remind you of all this. I know we talked about this and gave more examples, more gruesome details, and I'm not going to go into today again. But I say all that to make this point. This was not fertile soil for new converts. These were not; these were the least likely people in the whole world to turn to the Lord. They had no love for God, no taste for righteousness, no regard for human life, no fear of God. It's hard to conceive of a more unlikely city where spiritual awakening would spring forth from. I mean, again, going to the opening illustration, just we, just a modern comparison of Mosul, Iraq, or 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 the Gaza. And um, the West Bank. And, but not only that, <laughs> what do we see of Jonah's ministry style <laughs> and message? They're not exactly seeker-sensitive. This doesn't really fit that model. There was no tenderness, no compassion, no care, no diplomacy uh, on, on Jonah's part that might have kind of tugged on the heartstrings of these people and, and to, to kind of move them towards faith and repentance, not at all. Jonah hated them. I mean, he hated them. He wanted nothing more than for them to die and go to hell. That's, that's, that's his hope. He went against every fiber in Jonah's being to make this trip to Nineveh to warn them that God was about to judge them. <coughs> so he does obey, but reluctantly. He's not there to do friendship evangelism. He's not there to win people's affection by his smooth talking. His message is short and it's stinging. It's a message of doom delivered, no doubt, with the tone of scorn. And so you can imagine, you know, the, the, just put yourself in the shoes of the Ninevites, these people that are just waking up like any other day, and here's this prophet from Israel, their enemies, starts screaming out as he's walking around the city about the destruction of their city. And his message is just five words in the Hebrew, at least what we have. Translated in English, it's about eight words, depending on your translation. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. (laughs) That's a pretty depressing message, if you ask me. None of this, God loves Nineveh, Nineveh for Yahweh, say yes, Nineveh, no to those kind of slick campaigns or clever marketing. It's just a message of imminent judgment Nothing more It's not the way we would do it Or should do it I'm not advocating for this either You wouldn't wouldn't think this would have Any chance of success So what's the plan for reaching Nineveh? I'm sending Jonah You talking about the bitter Angry prophet Jonah? That's the one Who else are you sending? No one else What's he going to do? Gonna walk around and preach a five-word sermon over and over. What's the sermon about? Death and destruction. What's your backup plan? There's no other plan. That's it. That's what. That's what it is. It doesn't seem like a very promising evangelistic approach. Um, that's not something we've talked about on the Go Team. I don't think about how we reach Fayette County. Um, but underlying it is this truth. Listen, underlying it is this truth that Jonah himself can't even understand. It's this, is that Nineveh was ripe for awakening. Why? Because God was at work. Jonah didn't know it. Nineveh didn't know it. God knew it. This city was ripe. And and so no one could have predicted this. The week before Jonah showed up in Nineveh, it's business as usual. Just as violent and wicked and, and evil as they had always been. The day before he showed up, same thing. The morning he shows up, same thing. No one could have ever imagine that that day would end the way it did after the way it began you'd have the king and all the people including the cows dressed in sackcloth, sitting in ashes calling to Yahweh begging him for mercy worshipping him but God had been at work, behind the scenes, preparing the people for this very moment he was working long before Jonah showed up I think there's a great encouragement there for us, and for our folks that are, serve overseas even, that God is always at work long before our missionaries ever set foot on another place. He is always at work long before you ever open your mouth in evangelism. I know we see it and we think this is so daunting, and so impossible. We have no idea what God is doing and how he's working. It's not always visible. It was not visible in Nineveh. It wasn't like you, you could. They were doing surveys and said, man, there's a lot of spiritual interest in Nineveh right now. We ought to get somebody there. We just said, no chance. No chance. This is a death march, death wish. Well, let's look at the account of their turning to the Lord after Jonah's, quote, preaching. Some of you would like me to preach a five word sermon right now, I'm sure. Uh, verse five. Very simply, look at the response. It's just so short and <laughs> brief. And the people of Nineveh believed God. (laughs) He preaches this message of destruction. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What did they believe? (laughs) You look at his message and think, what could they have possibly believed? Well, they could have believed this. There is a God. This God is able to bring judgment. He will judge on the basis of the way we're living. And maybe we have a window of grace to respond. They got that much. I think that's what they believed continue on, they, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth and from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne showing his serious intent here. And he, and he, and he removed his robe, a sign of humility. He covered himself with sackcloth, a sign of mourning. And he sat in ashes, a sign of repentance. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Now, up until now, the Assyrians were known for, for, for being boasting in their, in their mightiness, the mightiness of their army, the mightiness of their strength, and the mightiness of their wealth. Now the king says. We need to be mighty in humiliation and brokenness and repentance and prayer. We need to call out mightily to God for mercy. Even the cows. What about the cows? The herds and the livestock. What have they done wrong? These wicked cows or something like that. What does a cow do when it's hungry? Moo." have ever been around a group of cows that are hungry, you know how loud that is. I think this is, is just adding to that atmosphere of mourning. Every living creature, we're going to bellow out to God, and we're going to mourn. He goes on, let, every, let everyone turn from His evil way and from the violence that is in His hands. What do they do? They, they call sin, sin. It's not, we were... We were we were kind of wrong, but not we didn't really mean it. We we didn't know murder was bad. Not justifying themselves, not even we're just really sorry, but we are we were wrong. We we're evil. We, we, we we're violence and we've sinned against God. This again, this is amazing, isn't it? Jonah just, just starting his speaking tour through Nineveh. First day, and the whole city is turning to the Lord and is mourning their sin. Even the king, the most widespread, sweeping, spiritual awakening, mass conversion in the history of the world, this metropolis full of hostile, pagan, violent, cruel, barbaric pagans, believes in God, turns from their sin to worship the Lord the God of Israel. Again, just, to, just try to conceive of what this would look like in, in any city today. Imagine a, town, a city of about 600,000 people, I think Boston or Milwaukee, some large city like that, just instantly in a day believing in the Lord. Just I, imagine Atlanta, Fayetteville, for that matter, garage day in an instant. It's crazy. Now the question is often raised here. Okay, Yes, it is crazy. <laughs> is this real? Is, it, is this really genuine conversion? Or is this simply some kind of show of superstition? If we can... Listen, if we can believe Jesus, it was real. <laughs> we read this. This is why I read in Matthew 12 at the beginning of the service. Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew twelve forty one, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of of Jonah. So the people of Nineveh will be there at the judgment. Listen, unbelievers aren't going to have any active role in the judgment. That's clear in Scripture. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 two that, that believers, the saints, will judge the world. And so Jesus is clearly saying that He regarded the these repentant Ninevites as genuinely redeemed people. They really believed God. They're now saints. They're, we're going to be in heaven and we're going to have a whole generation of Assyrians to talk to. And to be able to talk to them about the glories of God's grace. And we'll be begging for a thousand tongues to sing of them for eternity. This is, this is what we... I, I have no reason to believe otherwise. As I said earlier, though, God is doing all kinds of things in this event, in this moment. God loves mercy. And He loves extending it and showing it to these sinners by saving them. He is a saving God. That's one very visible, obvious thing that God is doing here, saving these Ninevites. He's provoking Israel to holy jealousy, secondly. He's, this is part of the purpose of the book of Jonah, I believe. Israel's in sin and rebellion at this time, and I think this is part of the pur- God's purpose, is provoking them to, again, this holy jealousy. He's sanctifying Jonah. He's, he's drawing out this bitterness and this lack of compassion, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But I think that's going on here. And he's doing a million other things in this this scene. He's he's using them even today in this room. All of that stuff happened back then, and you're sitting right here today hearing about him. We're talking about it. He's working now. He's doing a host of things right here this morning, working in our lives. But what an amazing moment. How could this possibly have happened? The only answer, we get it from Jonah himself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2.9. God did this. It's only the sovereign and gracious working of God and His Holy Spirit that can, can possibly explain this. Now, Before we move to that last surprise, I, I just want to point out the, um, that as great as this revival, this spiritual awakening was... The effects of it were pretty short-lived, and if you, we know this from from history, although this is a sweeping, dramatic turnaround for this generation of Ninevites, we know from history that within another generation or two, they've gone right back to their old ways. And and Nineveh is finally going to be destroyed in an act of judgment by God. You can look at the book of Nahum and see this uh, prophesied and recorded. And so, the, so the Assyrians' transformation as a people, I don't mean as individual believers, but as a people has this disappointingly short shelf life. And and maybe they didn't instill, instill the fear of the Lord to their children and to their grandchildren. I don't know. But by the next generation or two, they go right back to their old Assyrian ways and become more cruel and vicious than ever before, really. And they become an instrument that God uses to discipline His people and to judge Israel. So you have to ask: How is that possible? How could a how could a civilization go from this tremendous spiritual awakening, like this, to go right back into rank paganism within a few generations? Huh. If we're honest, we don't. That's really not a hard question, because we can see throughout history how fast this can happen. I mean, you look at throughout church history and the effect of of revival or of this mass spiritual awakening, and there have been those moments throughout throughout church history, but the effect usually only lasts a generation or two. And then slides right back. We've You've seen the meltdown in your own life, many of you who've, who've been around for a while, and how rapid that happens, probably more rapid than it did in the Syria. Um, and so again, it's a reminder to us that every generation needs their hearts refreshed and revived by God. We, we desperately need that. We are always only a generation away from the gospel The impact of the gospel being lost. Third surprise, finally. Let me be quick here. Third surprise is God's repentance. It's a strange expression, isn't it? God shows mercy. Verse 9, the king of Nineveh says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. And so the king of Assyria and all the people of Nineveh, they cast themselves on the mercy of God and say, maybe, maybe He won't destroy us like He said He would. Maybe He'll preserve us by His grace, and He does. He saw and He relented. He didn't do what He warned them about. Now, I had originally in my message, this is, I had like four pages of notes just on this, these two verses here, because this, is, this provokes a lot of questions for us. Some of you use the King James Version. It says that God repented. And that's why I'm using that language and, and outline here. And I thought about just putting this off, preaching a standalone message on verses 9 and 10. I'm not doing that now. Maybe I'll do that later. Um, but, but what do we do with this? It says that God relented, God repented. He, can God repent? Can God change His mind? If God is immutable, if God is unchanging... Uh, How do we square this? Well, I'm going to try to boil down four pages of notes, which could be 400 pages of of explanation, down to a few comments. Uh, So just listen. I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you may have about this, but God's patience with and mercy towards the Ninevites is really not a change with God at all. He was acting perfectly consistent with his character. Jonah knows this to be true. This is why he protests in the next chapter. He's ticked to God for making him go to Nineveh and making him come there. And he says in Jonah chapter 4 verse 1, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's that's exactly the kind of God you are. That's the kind of God you'll always be. So Jonah gets it. He's saying, God, you're perfectly consistent. What you did in relenting is exactly what you always do. And so God is acting consistently with this character. And not only that, He's acting consistently with His Word. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So I would say it's actually God's consistency his immutability, his unchangeableness that is behind his mercy and behind the Ninevites' turning and deliverance. God has consistently been patient and desirous of nations to, to, uh, to turn to him. And he has also consistently uprooted those nations that remain defiant against him. That does not change. If God had not turned away His judgment against Nineveh, then that would be a real conundrum for us, because we would say that is way out of character with God. He is really acting different. Now I realize that I have not answered all your questions, <laughs> cleared up all the confusion, because, uh, but but I don't want you to miss the point. Clearly, God was not caught off guard by their response. It's like God just didn't see that coming or something like that and think, okay, what do I do now? I've got to scramble and think of plan B. Well, I guess I'll, re- I guess I'll change my mind and show mercy. No, no, this was God's doing. He was at work in Nineveh long again, as we said, before Jonah showed up. He, 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 from the beginning, his purpose and design was to show mercy to this generation of Ninevites. So God, is, God is, he sees the end from the beginning he is the alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he knows all, he sees all he, we, he again we're from our vantage point as human beings, as creatures, it looks like a change, but God is different than us, we're not like him, and so we have to leave that with him Here's the thing though I really want you to see: if God would show mercy and extend grace instead of bringing swift judgment up against a culture like Nineveh. If he, would, if he would pour out His love on this spiritual, spiritually barren city as a, as a, like this, which had nothing in it that would draw God's mercy to it, then there is no nation, certainly no individual, that can, who cannot find mercy from a God like this. I just, maybe you, if you want to close your eyes or if you want to leave your eyes open, that's fine. I just want you to listen to God Speak. Listen to his heart as I read some passages and we'll close. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Again, if you want to close your eyes, just listen. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah forty three twenty five I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Micah 7, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Listen, that same mercy, that same transgression trampling grace of god the god who cast our sins into the heart of the sea that same that same offer of mercy is the message that's at the heart of the gospel god will relent god will show mercy to any sinner who turns to him in faith he he will declare you fully justified declare you perfectly righteous in spite of your sin and he can do that as he did with Nineveh without compromising his holiness without devaluating his perfect righteousness because why because Christ has paid the debt of our sin in full and he, and he gives us, He accounts to us Christ's righteousness, and, and it covers us as sinners, as like a, like a spotless garment. It just covers us. So, maybe, so, so that is available to you today. If you don't know Christ, if your sins have not been forgiven, if, this, if you can't say this, you can find mercy today. Call out to Him. Believe Him. Trust that Christ has paid the debt for your sins. And pray to him, and confess, turn to him. But maybe you're like Jonah; you're a believer, and you've you've maybe there's you, there's been repentance, and, and yet you've fallen back into old sins. Listen, don't ever think that 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 one act of repentance is going to solve your struggle with sin once and for all. One vow, one commitment, one pledge, one change. No, it won't. The Christian life invo- involves lifelong daily dying to self taking up our cross following Jesus it's not i don't mean to sound like it's a drudgery i the the christian life is a joyful life because it's a repentant life we're always we're always turning to do what god wants and what god wants is always best even when it doesn't feel like it at the moment Humble repentance coupled with growing faith that lays hold of the forgiveness and mercy of God. If that's that's true for us, brothers and sisters, it unleashes this host of blessings and joys that we did not earn and we do not deserve. But we can have by grace. We can't live today on our past repentance we, we've got to continue to face our sins and seek the Lord's mercy. That's the life of a believer. But here's the here's the big lesson. Remember nothing else today. We sang it. We, we've, we're seeing it here in Jonah three. It says God loves mercy. <laughs> he is a mercy loving God. We who've been so we who've been shown such lavish mercy, how should we respond? We should be people who love mercy and show mercy too. That's the lesson next week. The problem is, like Jonah, good people like us, we get offended by grace. And we're, we're going to see that next time. But the same God who loves mercy, the same God who is mighty to save, like he was in Nineveh, did in Nineveh, he is, he is still at work today. Do you believe this God is able today? Have you stopped believing that God can reach the unreachable? If you stop believing that God can do the seemingly impossible, do you tend to look around and you see how bad things are and you say this is hopeless? No, not with God, not with the God, not like a God that like we have. God is able. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you enlarge our minds and to understand, enlarge our hearts to 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 be affected by the greatness of you and your grace and your love as we sing now god great is your faithfulness lord we are faithless people we we like jonah we we can have little moments of of faithfulness but they last so they're so short but you are consistent you never change you're you're perfectly faithful and so we we want to lay hold of you we want to We put our hope in you, not in us and our pledges and our vows and our abilities and our our commitments and our willingness to sacrifice. Nor our confidences in you and the fact we are thankful, God, that salvation does not belong to us because it would not work and it would not spread. But salvation belongs to you. And so we are fully confident that you are able. You keep us who are in Christ and you will to the end and you you. You have power to extend the gospel and to see disciples made right here and around the world. You can do it in large groups and mass conversions like you did in Nineveh. And you can you can work mightily and powerfully. And it's no less mighty or powerful when you, you change one heart. You might do that even today. So, Lord, work. We trust you. We thank, we thank you. Again, as we lift our voices, help us to sing with glad and confident hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.